0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Christopher, and I will be bringing a a message for you this morning that I'm very excited about from Colossians. Uh, This will be continuing our series, and uh, I guess before we jump in, I just haven't really been up here in a while, I suppose, and there's been quite a lot going on with me, so a very quick uh, sort of personal update. I am actually recording this from the nursery of my newest uh, little baby. Uh, so Orson Emmanuel Rosevear, who is here and alive and well and growing and eating and, and potentially you might even get a surprise visit from his voice if he decides to scream at some point as I record this. But I just wanted to say thank you to everybody uh, for your prayers as Amy and I had a fairly difficult time getting him here. Um, truth be told, I wasn't particularly involved in that apart from as a chauffeur but uh, it's been a a pretty difficult experience. So uh, today I am actually going to be bringing a message really about suffering and pain and suffering and how we can look to Jesus in suffering. Um, So that is very raw to me, and I really hope that this message resonates with you because if it doesn't resonate with you in its own kind of content, it very well might be resonating with somebody else that you know dearly. So my hope is that you'll be able to come away from this morning with a bit of encouragement, uh, hopefully with some burdens lifted off of your shoulders, or at the very least with uh, comfort knowing that you're not alone in the middle of whatever it is you might be going through. And there's a lot. um, There's a lot of pain in our little uh, family at the moment, and I don't just mean me here, I mean new life. Uh, There's lots of struggles, so um, perhaps it would be best if we took a moment just to pray quickly uh, before I jump, jump into sort of what I've prepared. So would you please join me in praying, as odd as it might be in this way? Uh, you can close your eyes and bow your head if you so, so desire. I will. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you so much for who you are and for all that you do. And thank you for each one that is here uh, listening uh, to this, your word, your message. We pray that you would be here in the midst of us, as your servant Paul writes, in spirit, that we might be united and knit together. Uh, And we ask that as we come face to face with some of the struggles in our lives and with um, your risen Son, our Lord Jesus, we pray that the comfort of your Spirit might guide us and uphold us in a way that really only you can. Uh, So we ask that you'd be with each of us. Uh, Be with me especially as I speak these words, and I pray that my mouth might be filled uh, with good news, and that it might rest on the hearts of those uh, ready to receive it. So uh, be here among us, as you always are, but we ask that maybe we just have a sense of that today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me in that. He is risen. He is risen indeed. The great response, isn't it? Which we didn't really get to say this year, um, or last for that matter. Um, I certainly missed it. But that simple call and response, he has risen and everyone else saying he's risen indeed. That summarizes really the core hope of our faith. And I think is summary in some ways of kind of what Paul is talking about in this passage that we're looking at today. Jesus is alive. His people can attest to that. And we belong to that group. So really the the kind of big idea for this morning that I'll come back to at the end, but I'll tip my hand now is this, the greatest knowledge you can have is that Jesus is alive. You belong to him and you will forever, no matter what. Uh, So the passage that's been read for us this morning might be a little bit tricky to follow as far as kind of the logic of it goes. So I thought I'd paraphrase it in a way that maybe helps bring out some of what Paul's getting at. I hope it's helpful to you. So first, Paul is happy to suffer. You see that in verse 24. He's happy because it means he gets to do something that Jesus did and thus gets to be like him. That's also in verse 24. That's what he means when he says he's sort of completing the suffering of Jesus. Further, his suffering is because he's something of a butler. Okay, if you ever saw the show Downton Abbey, uh, that's kind of a, a good example, maybe, that will help us here. Um, this idea of there being sort of an upstairs-downstairs, a, a group of people that are the family, the wealthy ones that own all this land, and then sort of the poor, lowly serf, working class kind of rummaging through the down, downstairs and performing all of these duties and tasks. Um, Paul, in that analogy, is something like the butler. He manages the household, okay? and in this case, the household belongs to Jesus. So uh, Paul, uh, because of his privileged role as a manager of this house, he gets to be a part of the bad as well as the good for the benefit of the household. So if the household's doing well, he benefits, and if it's not doing well, because of his privileged status, he gets to help make it better, okay? One of his main jobs as this butler is to share with all the people who work in and around the estate this really interesting news that they have been welcomed into the home as well. And not just as servants, but as full-fledged members of the house, complete with a seat at the table and a full share in the inheritance. This news is so amazing that Paul is happy to struggle his way through it. And that you see in verse 29. And something that's implied here, but that isn't necessarily as obvious... Is that his biggest struggle seems to be that there's those who have been invited are finding it hard to believe that they actually belong to the family that's probably what he's getting at when he says he wants to present them mature it's implying that they're not yet mature and he's reminding them of this hope this good news so paul has to struggle with their doubt and with their confidence so that when jesus returns to this estate they will be able to trust in their newfound status. This metaphor, this paraphrase, uh, it very quickly breaks down, I confess. It's important for us to note, we're not just talking about a seat at a table or a share in some cash. We're actually talking about eternal life shared in bliss with the God of the universe. So even though the analogy doesn't go really far enough, I hope that it helps to clarify some of what Paul's getting at in this passage that's it's kind of wordy and maybe a little confusing. It was unknown for so long what kind of master ran the estate. But Jesus didn't just clear up what kind of master owned the property. He invited everyone to come be a part of the family. So there's lots that emerges from this passage when we examine it, though there's three things that I really want to emphasize that will form our our structure this morning. The first thing is that Paul embraces suffering. We'll see how and why. Second, that knowledge of Jesus breeds trust in Jesus. And then lastly, I'll finish with a question that's a bit pointed, but I think important. You have been invited to trust in Jesus. So how will you respond? So to start things off, first, Paul embraces suffering, right? Imagine with me a little bit here. Imagine that you're out for a Sunday afternoon drive. The weather we've been having lately it's fairly a reasonable thing, I would suspect. I've certainly had my fair share. Caught up in the beautiful scenery, you fail to notice that your fuel gauge is sitting on empty. Conflict. You gasp in horror, and shortly thereafter, your vehicle lurches to a halt on the shoulder. You're out of gas. Now imagine that you're moderately familiar with the region, so you know that there's a gas station uh, about five kilometers over the next hill. So you set yourself out to walking, knowing that it could be an hour there and maybe a bit more back. Let me ask you, who among you would be grateful that you were stranded. How healthy would it be to jump up and down for joy at the fact that you were stuck on the side of the road? A little bit odd, I must admit. So, when we say that Paul embraces suffering, let's not get confused. Paul is not taking joy in being stranded at the side of the road, okay? He's not taking joy in the pain of suffering itself. There's something else going on. So Paul is not in any way suggesting that pain is good. He's not advocating for it. He's not sanctioning it. Pain and suffering are not in and of themselves positive qualities, at least not usually. We don't really have time to dive into some of the big questions that spiral out of this. I want to acknowledge a couple of them so that I'm not just ducking away. What I've just described so far could very reasonably bring up questions like, does God cause pain, or if God is good, why does he allow bad things to happen? Those are really big thoughts, and we don't have time, unfortunately, to address those in full right now, though if you have those questions, I'd love to chat with you about them. They're good questions, good discussions to have. The focus for our conversation this morning is this, given that pain and suffering are part of human existence. What are we supposed to do about it? This is kind of what Paul is speaking to. So as Christians, our name, Christian, means little Christ, little Jesuses, in other words. People who look, behave, and are characterized by the life ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. Christians are defined by their desire to be like Jesus. That's the whole gimmick. That's why we have that name. And thankfully, uh, because of Jesus, we actually know how to be human. When we look at the life of Jesus, who was fully human and fully God, um, who revealed the fullness of God uh, that humans can actually experience, and at the same time modeled the ideal, perfect human life, um, we can actually see that Jesus embraced suffering. Um, He embraced those who suffer. He embraced sufferers. He teaches his followers to look out for those who suffer. Uh, People like the poor, the marginalized, the dispossessed, refugees, the widow, the one who's sick, you know, a leper, the one in prison. He encourages to comfort those who are stricken with grief. All of this is embracing those who suffer and meeting them in their pain. But more than that, Jesus embraced suffering himself. So he didn't just acknowledge people who experience it. He also experienced it personally. Jesus mourns when uh, the life of Lazarus, his cousin, passes. When when Lazarus is dead, he cries, it's said uh, in Scripture in John. He also doesn't dodge uh, the torture that's coming his way, despite knowing that it was coming. The Gospels record that he went into a garden called Gethsemane. And he prayed surrounded by trusted friends. One account actually indicates that he resisted the desire to run away so much that he actually started sweating blood, which, creepy as it is, can actually happen. In any case, uh, the prayer that he modeled in that moment is one we call a relinquishment. In other words, he gave up control and chose instead to trust God no matter what. That's when he says, not my will, but yours be done. The point here is not that you should run headlong into any chance to suffer, because then you get to be like Jesus. That would be foolish. But at the same time, neither should you run from suffering when you find yourself caught in the middle of it. So let's return to our stranded vehicle analogy. How would it help you uh, to pretend that running out of gas is what you always wanted? Hmm? It's the best thing that ever happened to you, right? I mean, I'm not just talking about positivity, having a plucky attitude. I mean, what would it gain you to say, yes, what a great opportunity. Maybe it's just me. That seems dishonest. I get making the most out of a poor situation, but I think you'd be lying to yourself if you played it off like you always wanted it. Even worse than that would be to say, I'm not stranded, I'm just out for a walk. To deny the reality altogether. That's not positivity. That's delusion. So in the same way, I think that it's wrong to discredit suffering as something different than it is, something other than what it is. I think we need to be able to accept suffering without trying to make it into something else. And I want here to actually speak to those who might discredit the suffering of others. Now, hold on, you might say, I would never do that. Not on purpose, sure but I would invite you to consider that you very well may have done this without meaning to. I certainly have. Consider this. Imagine one last time that you're walking out on the road, stranded. How would you feel if another motorist slowed down beside you, rolled down their window, and leaned out shouting, Don't worry, there's a gas station over that hill, and sped off into the distance. I mean, did that help, (laughs) right? You already knew that. Um, they haven't comforted you. What they did was sort of just throw the knowledge that you already had in your face and at the same time rub your face in your poor reality. Obviously the better option there would have been to invite that person into the vehicle and take them to the gas station yourself. Or maybe drive up to the gas station and come back and provide the gas that's needed in that situation and spare that person the hassle. Or better, not better necessarily, but certainly better than what we just described would be to not say anything at all because you haven't helped the situation. It would be better to just drive off. So when we say things like, well, it will all work out or it's all in God's plan, we need to be careful about how we sound. Um, That very well might be reducing somebody else's experience to something that it's not or ignoring suffering that's there. Um, So be careful what sort of advice you choose to give um, or that you choose to offer somebody in a position who is suffering. What you mean as a comfort might be nothing more than a platitude, sort of a nice sounding saying but doesn't really have any meaning to it or at least it doesn't have the meaning you mean it to have. It might make the situation worse and it could come across really insensitive or even foolish. So be careful. The point here is that If we don't first embrace a sufferer as they are, and the suffering itself for what it is, then our words might do more harm than good. I hope that makes sense. So when Paul speaks of rejoicing in the midst of suffering, let's be careful what we take away. Paul is here reminding us that even in suffering, there's a chance for us to be like Jesus in a way that we can't otherwise be like him. So in the same way while we don't run from suffering we can be glad that even when suffering comes our way we can at the very least be comforted knowing that jesus himself experienced similar things and in this way i think that there is comfort and hope for for us who may or may not uh, endure that pain helping somebody else maybe endure that pain i think there's hope in that so this is what we mean when we say that paul embraced suffering he saw at once its hardship and its potential he discredited neither and carried on joy-filled regardless." But how is it that Paul was able to carry on joy-filled? If you're uh, familiar with Paul's life, it was filled with difficulty, shipwrecks and being stranded, put in prison, all kinds of things. So it's that question, how how did Paul even do that, that most of the passage actually speaks. At the heart of this passage is that knowledge of Jesus breeds trust in Jesus. It might seem out of place at first to focus on suffering, as I've just done. It's kind of a throwaway line at the start, isn't it? But actually, most of this passage from Paul is encouragement to a specific community to trust in Jesus at the same time that he's highlighting for them just how much trouble he has himself had as a servant of Jesus. So he's sort of encouraging them in the middle of his own suffering, that it's okay to trust when things are rough and in fact this theme of mystery that kind of runs throughout this passage is itself actually tied to this idea of trusting in jesus because of his presence right the closeness of jesus the idea that jesus is actually so close with his people he could be said to be inside of them uh, which is really just such a beautiful image uh, in itself so this mystery now revealed as it says in the passage, is this, Christ in you. This idea that Jesus has welcomed all to come and be in relationship with him, uh, that everyone belongs to a new household, that even as a servant, they share a seat at the same table with the family and are in fact servants no longer. This is the knowledge which fuels Paul's desire to quote, uh, present everyone mature in Christ. Mature here meaning something like complete, fully grown up. This is Paul's pastoral, nurturing heart coming out. Uh, sometimes Paul the Apostle can come across really theological in a way that's almost hard to understand. Peter actually acknowledges that at one point in his letters. He's like, Paul's kind of tough sometimes. Part of me wonders if that's just because the Bible's so often translated by really intelligent you know, professors and they kind of read themselves into the language. Hard to say. Um, But here you really do get a glimpse at just the love that Paul has for these people he's trying to help grow. Uh, He's really nurturing at heart, and I, I think that this is a cool moment where that really comes out. You see, he desires to see these people that he cares for fully embrace the hope that Jesus is alive. That's a beautiful desire, but it's also a difficult one. People struggle to trust. Simple as that. But, as we laid out before, we, as Christians, are little Jesuses, people whose lives and character resemble his. So when we're faced with difficulty or when we're finding it difficult to trust, uh, we continually look back to his example and we try our darndest to model our attitude and behavior after his. As we face challenges, we return to the feet of the master and seek his comfort and guidance. And praise God, he gives it. So then, from there, we can step out with boldness, with the knowledge that if he is indeed risen, then everything is different. There is no challenge, no discouragement, or obstacle that can be worse than the ultimate end, which is death. Yet even death is overturned. Thus, when we look at Jesus, we find the answer to any question that really matters. What does it mean to be human? Well, Jesus shows us that. Life itself makes sense, and everything that doesn't make sense still might not matter that much anyway. The more that we understand the character of Jesus, the life that he lived, the example that he set, the more and more that uh, more and more sense life makes and the more and more sense that life makes the more and more appealing that life forever with him becomes and i don't just mean that in a lovey-dovey kind of you know fancy good way right ignoring all the bad things I'm saying look this is so nice far from it i'm embracing the bad here too the life of jesus is fraught with pain and suffering He lived the full gamut of human experiences right down to the bitter end, death. But he didn't stay dead. And that single fact is the whole hope of our faith. This is why knowledge of Jesus breeds trust in Jesus. Because if we can believe that he overcame death, then the very nature of life itself has changed. This is the hope that Paul refers to this is the mystery now revealed the murky nonsense of human existence is suddenly made clear in light of the person of Jesus Christ he rose from the dead life is different so even in suffering we can trust in Jesus whose own life and power uh, currently already resides in those who turn to him. Because by turning to him, by trusting in him, by modeling ourselves like him, really the, the bones of it all is that if he so rose, then if we follow him, we will too. And that is a beautiful thought. so by means of i guess a conclusion here i want to ask you that first question once again you too have been invited to trust in jesus no matter what how will you respond you are loved you are welcomed you have a place at the table a share in the inheritance and are called by his name the greatest knowledge that you can have is this jesus is alive you belong to him and you will forever no matter what so to those of you who might be experiencing suffering of your own let me say this Uh, we suffer with you there's a reason that paul describes the church as a body not just as a household if one part hurts the whole does as well so we pray that you would find peace and comfort and hope in the life of christ we pray for endurance we pray for patience and we pray that you would feel the freedom to speak your mind to god who is your father and who is not himself a stranger to grief finish off, um, I always like to wrap up with a blessing. I just, I think it's a really beautiful way to close off meeting together as God's people. So I'm going to raise my hands like this. And if you like, you can put your hands down kind of in a cup, which symbolizes um, through receiving that blessing. Um, if that's really awkward, don't worry about it. Forget I said that. Um, but allow me to bless you to finish out today. May your hearts be encouraged. May you be knit together in love by one same spirit be you near or far. May you find in Jesus his treasure of wisdom and knowledge, and may that knowledge of him encourage you to trust and give you comfort in times of trouble and breathe hope and life to your soul. Go in peace. Thanks for being here. Bye for now.